you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're in Luke chapter 2. This week, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Next week, we'll look at verses 8 through 14 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled Songs of the Season. And today, the song we're going to look at is O Little Town of Bethlehem that we will sing after the sermon. And what we really hope to accomplish accomplish this season is this. We want to preach the Word of God and not lyrics of songs, but so many of these songs are so rich because they contain Scripture within them. And a lot of times we don't know our Scripture well, and so we don't realize that we're quoting Scripture when we sing these songs. And so in order to appreciate the songs that we sing and the Scripture within them, We're looking at the songs of the season so that we might have a greater appreciation for the songs and for the scripture. So what I want to do this morning is first, uh, I'm going to read Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. I want to pray for us after that. And then I want to tell you about how O Little Town of Bethlehem was written, sort of the story behind the song And have that lead us into an examination of Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. So that's what we will do together today. Uh, So if you would hear now the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this passage of Scripture low these many years. And and I know they may be familiar to many of us. We've heard these words before, perhaps so many times that they just become trite. They become old. I pray that you would make them new. That by your Spirit, you would bring them alive. And that we would be changed by the events that happened on that first Christmas. Holy Spirit, please come now and accomplish this in the hearts of your people. And I pray that you'd be willing to use even the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher to do so. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, was written by Phillips Brooks. Um, who was born in Boston in 1835. So this is one of ours. This is an American hymn. It hasn't been translated. It was first written in English. Brooks went to public schools all the way through there in Boston. Then he went to Harvard University where he graduated and then taught Latin for two years in the public school where he had gone to high school before he went to Harvard. Maybe some of you relate to that story. Unfortunately... After he had worked there for two years, he was fired because he wasn't a very good teacher and didn't do well with the kids. He writes in his journal about that time, I do not know what will become of me. 
I wish I were 15 years old again. I believe I might become a stunning man, but somehow or another, I do not seem in the way to come to much now. Maybe you felt that way before. He felt like his life was going to be a failure because at 22, it hadn't worked out for him to teach school. What will become of him? Well, three of his five brothers had become Episcopal priests, so he decides he'll do that as well. So he goes to Virginia, and he studies and becomes an Episcopal priest. And in 1859, Phillips Brooks goes to Philadelphia, where he ministers, is the lead minister there in an Episcopal church. And the first thing he did, this was very bright, he went and recruited a real estate agent, some of you relate to that as well, he recruited a real estate agent who was a super salesman, a guy by the name of Lewis, um, uh, what's his name, Lewis, I lost it, Lewis Redner to be his Sunday school superintendent and his organist. Now in these days, Sunday school wasn't for everybody. Sunday school was just for kids, and mostly for kids who didn't come from Christian homes. The presumption was, if you were in a Christian home, you were taught the Bible at home. But for these kids who didn't have Christian parents, there was Sunday school, and you would go and pick up the kids and bring them. And so that first year that they were there in Philadelphia, they had 30 kids in Sunday school, and then they had services on Sunday for people in the area and for Christians to come and worship. Within a year, they had over a thousand kids in Sunday school and they were running multiple services on Sundays and Wednesdays. So God was blessing their ministry there. But ministry became difficult as the Civil War began in the United States there in 1861. Brooks writes in his journal, that just about every woman in the church wore black as she had lost a husband or a son or both in the Civil War. People were down. It was a dark time in our country. Brooks wanted to inspire his flock, but he could not give them the one thing they most wanted, which was peace. When you read the lyrics of O Little Town of Bethlehem, I think you sense what he was the, the, the context in which he was ministering when he writes that hymn, and we'll sing it in a little bit, and you'll be able to see that. And then as the Civil War was ending, Brooks hoped things would get better, but the ministry remained hard as men returned from fighting the war, looking for jobs, many of them physically injured, all of them with mental scars. Then when President Lincoln was shot... The darkness returned as Lincoln was assassinated. Phillips Brooks, the guy who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem, interestingly, is the minister who does President Lincoln's funeral. Little known trivia there, right? Not because he was Lincoln's pastor, but just because by this time, he was well known for his oratorical skills. And so he reaches down deep and he speaks eloquently, but seeing the great leader senselessly slain just left him void of all he needed to pastor. He needed a break. By this time, he's only 30 years old, but he's already lived a lifetime. So he takes a sabbatical and goes to the Holy Land. And on Christmas Eve of 1865, just a few months after the American Civil War was over, Phillips Brooks went to Bethlehem for the five-hour 
Christmas Eve service at the Church of the Nativity. Now, we're going to meet for less than an hour on Christmas Eve. But he's going to a five-hour service. And as he rides out on horseback from Jerusalem where he was staying to Bethlehem, which is about seven miles away, he passed the very fields where the shepherds, as he wrote, heard the Christmas angels the great glad tidings tell. And as he rode out, he writes in his journal that that night there were still in Christmas Eve 1865, still shepherds out in the fields keeping flocks over their, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Then as he went to this Christmas Eve service, he writes in his journal, I was standing in the old church in Bethlehem close to the spot where Jesus was born. When the whole church was ringing hour after hour with the splendid hymns of praise to God, how again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I know well telling each other of the Savior's birth. With his faith and strength and hope renewed, Phillips Brooks returned to minister at his church in Philadelphia. And a few Christmases later, He wanted a special carol for the kids to sing for their Christmas program. And so he wrote these verses as he reflected on his time in Bethlehem. He then gave this poem that he had written to his good friend, Louis Redner, who wrote the music. And over the next few years, the hymn was published and became very popular. And by the time of his death, 25 years later, O Little Town of Bethlehem became one of the most popular Christmas hymns of all time. That's sort of the story behind the song. Those are interesting things. Thanks for that inspiration. But why make it the topic of a sermon? Well, what are we to take away from this? And the question that that I've got in my mind that I want us to think about this morning is this. What happened to Phillips Brooks in Bethlehem that grew his faith and his hope and his strength? What was it? It's an important question because while we might not have lived through a civil war, many of us feel like we have. We faced struggles, dark times in our nation and in our families and in our own lives. How do you get to that place where your faith grows and you have hope again and you have strength to go on? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not even sure you buy all this stuff. It kind of seems like a myth or like a fairy tale that we tell over and over again every year. And if you're here today and you do believe what Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, I promise you, you will be around folks this holiday season who do have doubts about whether or not it is true. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 2 and think about what it is that happened for Brooks and what it is that happened for Luke as he wrote this account. Because when you really think about this story and you realize that all this stuff is historical and that it really happened, it grows your faith. And it becomes a source of great hope and strength. So let's look at this account together. The main point this morning, if you're a note taker, you've got your notes there on the back of your order of worship. You see that main point. The main point today is that Luke's account, this Luke 2 that we're going to read, Luke's account 
is anchored in real history, real time and space history. This stuff really happened. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 as we see that Luke anchors this account in real history. Look at verse 1. He writes, In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now notice, he doesn't begin this story with once upon a time. That's how you start fairy tales, right? He doesn't have a vague beginning like long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars enthusiasts are with me on that one. But he begins it in verse 1 by saying, hey, all this stuff took place when a decree went out for, from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You see, archaeology and historical writings confirm that Caesar Augustus was a real historical figure. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar who adopted Caesar Augustus as his own son and designated him as his heir. He had earlier been known as Octavian, if you remember from world history. He was a member of that triumvirate that overpowered his rivals to claim the throne and reigned as emperor for 40 years in Rome. That is a historical fact. Those things happened. And so Luke is anchoring his account in these historical facts. He goes on, look at verse 2. He says, this was... The first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We'll do the research. Look at the history, right? Documents outside the Bible confirm that Quirinius was, in fact, a military leader in this area around this time, that he did become a governor of Syria, and he did conduct a census in this area around this time. Again, these are historical facts. Where Luke is anchoring this story, connecting this story to real things that really happened because the events that follow really happened and are a part of real time and space history. Look at verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now you would think that if in the Roman Empire there was this decree that people had to leave where they were and go back to their ancestral homes to be counted, probably because Caesar wanted to show what great power he had. I rule over X number of people. That there'd be some kind of record of that disturbance. If we all had to go back to our hometowns, you would think there would be some kind of record of that, right? That somebody would complain. Well, they didn't have social media in the day. But archaeology and ancient writings do confirm that Caesar Augustus did reorganize the administration of his empire and that he did order a census several times during his reign and that people did return to their ancestral homes to be registered. So Luke's account, there are a myriad of other ways. We'll talk about more this morning and more next week. But this account is rooted in real time and space history. All right, that's the main point. So what? Thank you for the history lesson, right? Could have listened to some book on tape, an audio book or something, right? So what? What difference does it make to our lives? Let me just mention three things. It has a lot of implications. But the first one I would say is this. It shows that Luke's account is trustworthy and reliable. It shows this account is trustworthy and reliable. Remember who Luke is writing to. Do you remember? 
Look back with me. I'm going to flip back one page to the very beginning of Luke. Luke chapter 1 where he addresses who he, to whom he is writing. And he writes there in Luke chapter 1 verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke is saying, listen, I'm not the only one who is saying these things. There are other people who are writing these things down and making these claims as well. Certainly that would put some pressure on him to get it right because other people are documenting this too, right? Verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and minister of the word have delivered them to us. He's saying, listen, I'm talking to eyewitnesses. I'm talking to people who were there when it happened, who saw these things, and they've told me about it, and you've heard these things being said. But these are eyewitnesses we're talking to, people who actually saw it. Verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who exactly who Theophilus was. He had this title, most excellent, so he's some type of governmental official uh, who would be in the Roman government because that's who ruled at that time. He has a, a Greek name, Theophilus, God-lover, so perhaps he had converted or was interested in Christianity. He certainly doesn't have a Jewish name, so he's not part of the Sanhedrin. And he has this title, Most Excellent. He's writing to a government official. Think about that. That means that if he's making this stuff up about Caesar Augustus or Quirinius or a census, this guy would probably know. Or he would have the means to find out because he could ask people because he's a government official. And it hasn't been that long since these things have taken place in this region. And if what Luke had written was so outlandish and didn't make any sense, if he got the history wrong, Theophilus wouldn't have saved this. It wouldn't be preserved for 2,000 years. But for it to be preserved, it must have been right. It must have been cherished. It was something that he held on to. So it must have been accurate in what it said. Look at verse 4. He says, I write these things for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's our takeaway. That Luke couldn't make these things up. He get called on it. And it certainly wouldn't have been preserved if these things weren't accurate. So as a believer, what does that mean? So what? The so what is you can have confidence in the things that you have been taught because they're rooted in real time and space history. They've stood the test of time. Believer, you can be confident. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to be afraid of the doubts of the culture and the people around you. Listen. The Bible has stood the test of time for 2,000 years, so I think you're going to be okay going into your Philosophy 101 class next semester. You may not have the answer to everything that comes up, but there's nothing new under the sun. You can have confidence in the things that are written here in God's Word. And if you're not yet a believer... I hope you'll come to the Scripture, bring your questions, bring your scrutiny... You should do so. And, and do the work like we did. When it says something historical, look for it. See if it's accurate. Luke is such an accurate historian 
that archaeologists started just going and looking for things he wrote about because he'd been so accurate about the things they had found already. That's how reliable Luke is. He writes Acts as well. So read Luke. Read Acts. Bring your questions. You can be confident that these things are true, and you can have certainty about the things that the Bible teaches. That's the the first thing. This account is trustworthy and reliable. Second, for believers, and if you're an unbeliever who's been offended by folks trying to make you one, let me share this second thought with you. This account is a model for outreach. This account is a model for outreach. Do you see what Luke does here? He begins in the Roman world that Theophilus is familiar with. This is a Roman official, so he's writing about Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and things that the government has done. And he begins in this world where Theophilus would be familiar and in things he is interested in, and then he builds a bridge from that Roman world to the reception of this Jewish Messiah that Luke, himself a Gentile, wants Theophilus to embrace. Do you see how he builds a bridge? I wonder, do we reach out to people in this way? Do we build bridges for the gospel or do we burn bridges with people? You're going to be sitting around a table sometime during the holiday with people who have views that are hostile to what you think. How are we going to handle that? This is very practical, and we can learn what Luke does. Too many times we just start where we want to start or where we've learned to start or where our gospel presentation starts because that's the way we've learned to do it if we bother sharing the gospel at all. If we're willing to speak up at all, we typically just start where we want to start. Well, how do you know where to start? Well, we ask questions. Often we don't take the time to get to know people and to ask questions. Luke obviously has figured out the things that Theophilus is interested in that he would know about it. He starts where Theophilus is and then builds a bridge to where he wants to take him. Oh my. Many of us... As we talk to the people around us and we spend time with them, we condemn their music, we condemn their movies, we condemn their politics, and then wonder why they're not open to our gospel presentation. Listen, I'm not saying that we affirm everything. People have a lot of beliefs that are wrong. What I'm saying is ask questions. Why do you think that's a good song? What do the lyrics mean? Why is this movie, why did it have such an impact on you? Why do you think that's such a good movie? Why do you think that's a good policy? Why do you support the politicians that you support? Why do you think that's the right thing? And then don't just ask questions, but, but listen to people's answers. And people made in the image of God long for the things that only Jesus can give. Peace on earth and in our hearts. A sense of calm and still in an anxious world. Salvation from sin that we can never overcome in ourselves. This account is a model for outreach. So as you spend time with folks this holiday season... 
ask questions, listen, begin where they are, and build a bridge to the things God talks about in his word. So second, this is a a model for outreach. Third thing, this account shows God's control over the world. This account shows God's control over the world. We get so worried and anxious many times because we forget that God is in control of this world. But this account shows that God is in control. Think about this with me. Think about Joseph. He was in the second verse of that song, Labor of Love. I I love thinking about Joseph and the position that he was in. Think about that with me. He's engaged to Mary, right? Maybe it was a Hallmark movie engagement. Maybe everything came together well and they were excited. I don't care what culture you're in. When you're looking forward to being married and having children and spending your lives together, it's an exciting time. So he's engaged to Mary. She goes on this trip to see her cousin Elizabeth. She comes back pregnant. You know it's not your baby because you haven't done anything that would make a baby in Mary, right? So it's not your baby, and here are all your hopes and dreams, and she's pregnant. And so you're going to break it off, right? You're going you're gonna to divorce her because you're an honorable person. But then you have this dream where an angel tells you not to be afraid to take her as your wife because what is in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Whew, that was a weird dream. And you go to Mary and begin to talk about it, and she says, yeah, I didn't have a dream. An angel actually appeared to me and said the same thing, that what was in me would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and that this child was going to be the Savior of the world, God's own Son. Yeshua, meaning the Lord saves. So Joseph believes her. Presumably nobody else does. They're the only ones approached by angels that we're told about. If you read Matthew 1's account, Matthew 1's account closely, he seems to take her into his home at that time, even though they're not married yet. They're probably shunned by the people around them for breaking God's law. And then, right when the time comes for her to deliver, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. You think your Christmas trip in the car is going to be hard? Let's walk 90 miles on foot with a nine-month pregnant woman. Let's do that. Because the government wants to tax us more. Oh, my goodness. So they start on their trip. They get all the way there. She goes into labor. We don't have a room because I couldn't. You make reservations ahead of time. Everything's full. Probably the people who were doing the registration and taking the census got the rooms first. Maybe some people who were being registered and taking the Now there's no room in an inn. She's having a baby. As the song said, no midwife to be found, no doula. Here's Joseph delivering a baby in a place where animals are kept. And the Son of God, he places in a feeding trough for animals that we call a manger. Surely, once that happens, and Joseph gets a moment to catch his breath, surely he has to think, this is not the way I thought life would be. This is not at all what I thought about when I dreamed of being married and having children. 
We feel that way, don't we? We thought we would be married by now, or we thought we would have a marriage different than the one we've got by now. We thought we would have kids by now, or the ones that we've got we thought would be different kids than the ones we've got now. We thought we'd be further in our career. Maybe you thought you'd be retired by now. Life often does not work out the way that we thought it would. We have all felt like, this is not what I signed up for. My life is so out of control. And it's so interesting to me because on one level, Joseph's journey is the consequence of the decree of Caesar Augustus, who sent out this decree that all the world should be taxed. But on another level, even the imperial power of Caesar Augustus is subject to the power of another, the power of our creator, God. You see, our God is the Lord of history. And the decrees of an emperor many miles away do not stop God's purposes, but it furthers them. Think about it. We read this morning, you heard Levi read Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. It had been prophesied 400 years earlier that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth. How's this baby going to be born in Bethlehem? Well, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And they were sent to the city of David for the son of David to come and be the savior of the world. We feel like Joseph sometimes. We feel like our life is out of control, that it's not the way it's supposed to be, that people many miles away, CEOs of big companies or politicians in Washington, D.C., many miles away, that they're the ones calling the shots and they're the ones that have the control. But the Christmas story reminds us our God has control over our world. And he often works in unexpected ways. So don't lose hope. Look to him. Trust in him. Walk with him. Don't walk away from him. The temptation when things don't go our way is to be bitter and to doubt. I call you move toward God and not away from him. Trust him. He's in control. And he often works in unexpected ways. None of us is the author of our own story. Yet the story God writes for us is so much better than anything we could write for ourselves. Maybe you're here this morning and you have some doubts this Christmas. Hey, that's okay. God's big enough to handle your doubts. The Bible has withstood critical scrutiny for 2,000 years so it can handle your questions. Read it. Check the history like we did in those few verses today. Read it and really think about it. Put yourself in the shoes of those who have lived these things like we did with Joseph today. Learn the lessons that they learned. It's the same thing Phillips Brooks writes in his hymn, that tells us how to have our faith and our strength and our hope renewed. We're about to sing this third verse, and he writes how it happens. 
He says in verse 3, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. My prayer for you this holiday season is that your faith and your hope and your strength may be renewed this Christmas. And to see that happen, I would encourage you to pray this prayer that Phillips Brooks wrote in verse 4. I'll use it as part of our closing prayer. Let's pray together. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Heavenly Father, we confess that in the busyness of life, our faith often fades. Our hope is often replaced by cynicism. And instead of having strength, we're just tired. This Christmas season, we ask you to descend on us once again by your Holy Spirit to renew our faith, to reignite our hope, and to restore our strength that we might live for you and your glory as your kingdom comes more and more and your will is done more and more in us and in this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.